reaching from way down here. Yeah. Yeah. From way down here. Welcome to Thread, a podcast designed to explore God's story and lead you into a full life in Christ. Thank you for joining us in this conversation, co-hosted by myself, Hannah D'Souza, and Dr. David Pochter. So welcome back to Thread. Hi, Dave. How are you doing? Great to see Good you, to see Hannah. You too. What are you drinking? I see your tea. What am I drinking? You know, I'm always drinking a few things when we're recording. I actually have a really crazy tea right now. Ooh. I'm drinking holy basil and olive leaf oh tea. Oh my goodness. It's supposed to be good for my health. That sounds terrible. It does not taste good. We also say basil. But I also have coffee and water, so. In England. No, we holy, don't say basil. basil. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have fun with the accent we will. piece of these episodes, yeah. I'm you just saying. You haven't got me started on aluminium yet, so we'll stay friends for now. Oh, well, <laughs> I think aluminium might be avoided in our podcast. We'll see. I'm also drinking tea. I've got some <laughs> so, English breakfast here for those watching the video. Okay, English breakfast. Yes, classic. Well, next week we're going to be jumping into Genesis and working our way through the narrative of the Bible using the lenses we've been talking about so far of story and spirituality. And as the name Thread suggests, we're going to keep looking at all the ways our lives have been woven into the story of God, as well as ways in which God desires to weave us into his story. So, so far we've been laying the foundation with these introductory episodes. We're still in the introduction, but we're getting there. This is our last of the introductory episodes. Because we feel, Yay. yeah, that is a good thing. We feel it's important to get off on the right foot and just lay a good foundation for what's coming. So in episode one, we talked about our image of God, because that how we view God shapes everything else and everything that comes after this. And in episode two, we discussed why stories and the power of story and the role it plays as this overarching genre in the Bible. And in episode three last week, Dave began to give some definition to spirituality and how our spirituality encompasses every part of us. And this uh, all-inclusiveness and the radical realignment that is needed of our story into God's story. And that call to metanoia and embracing a way of being in the world that transcends how we see it now. And then today's episode is the story of our faith. And we're going to be exploring the big picture story of the Bible and the meta-narrative, which, yeah, we've used this phrase from garden to garden. We're going to be painting that picture in this episode. Mm. Yeah, that garden to garden is a really neat starting place for this. We're really going to talk a little bit about bookends today. You know, there's something fascinating about the first two and the last two chapters of the Bible. So Genesis 1 and 2 really create the setting or the whole story and God's intent, God's vision, God's maybe ideal image. And then what we see in Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible is this fulfillment of that ideal vision restored and all the wonderful things that happen to get us there. So that's the meta narrative, the overarching woven together story. So I thought we could maybe look at that a little bit today. We'll talk a little bit about what's 
what is this imagery of Genesis 1 and 2? What is this imagery in Revelation 21 and 22? And then how does the story unpack, at least in the big picture, throughout that story? So that's what I thought we'd talk about today, Sounds Anna. Good. Does that sound good? Yeah. So let's start with Genesis 1 and 2. Really, when we think about the beginnings of this story, this narrative, this meta-narrative, we have to think about this in the sense of what it was originally intended when it was written. This is a story of origins. This is how the Israelite people framed who they were, their identity, and that, that really works at two levels, who we are as a people, our communal kind of vision of identity. But it also does apply to us individually. What's my identity as an individual who follows Yahweh? How did we come into the world? And what role do we play in the world? So that's the purpose of origin stories. And that's really what we see happening here in these first two chapters of Genesis. So the other thing that we see at the beginning of this story in Genesis, this origin story, is genealogies. And I know the temptation for contemporary or modern readers is we just want to skip the genealogies. We don't understand oh, yes. you know, all of them <laughs> and what they mean, <laughs> right? Yep. Too many sons of sons. But genealogies, sons of sons, that's right. Genealogies actually serve a real important purpose. They really function like cultural maps. And we do get that in our own sense. I'm, a few weeks ago, I did uh, Ancestry DNA. Actually, it's been oh, a few wow. months ago now. And I've always you know, been told that I was half Jewish and half Czech. And that was always the story I was telling. <laughs> and it, it kind of settled my cultural questions about where I come from. But what's interesting is when I started learning about a little bit more about my actual ancestry and DNA, it opened up some new things that I wasn't aware of mm. before. So that's really what genealogies do. Mm. What are right? you, Dave? They function as these culture maps. Yeah. What am I? <laughs> so <laughs> I'm actually, <laughs> I am 50% Jewish oh, wow. from the area of Russia. So that my mom was 100% Jewish and that's true. But my Czech side that I thought was all Czech is not all Czech. Mm. It's part Czech, part German, and part Dane or Swedish. Oh, wow. Okay. So I have some Viking blood in me. I can see that. Kind of like yeah, that. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> you can see that. <laughs> oh, okay. So that's what genealogies do for us, right? They help us understand where we come from, our culture. Mm. The other thing that's fascinating about these first two chapters is we actually have two different accounts of creation. Sometimes we just kind of read it all as one, but there's really two narratives that are at play here. One is Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, 4. And that one is the, you know, in the beginning, God created and you have these big, it's more big picture. It's more spacious. It's taking in the whole world, the whole of, of the universe into account. So you have things like on day one and on day two and how that all came to be. But then it really shifts. We have this kind of second creation account that comes to play in Genesis 2, 4, where we see the creation of Adam and Eve. And they're created by dust and or they come out of dirt, right? <laughs> dirt man. That's what Adam means, dirt wow. man. Flattering. And it's more... I said flattering. <laughs> Yes, flattering, exactly. But it comes more out of this local setting. So we're in the Garden of Eden, and it's beautiful, 
and it's personal. And Adam and Eve are there in this really intimate setting with God. And so we get a different image of creation that, that's very personal there. So what's important in this origin story is what kind of imagery is being communicated to us. And there's some really important things that we have to kind of lock into because as God wants us to understand who we are and where we come from and what our identity is, these are the pieces that really, really matter to that. So one of those would be humans are created to have a special relationship with God. We see that, right, in that origin story. We also see that humans are created to have authority on God's behalf over the earth. And it puts us in this really unique relationship, which you'll probably hear me refer to a lot over the next few episodes, that we are vice regents or co-regents meaning we function in this role of true partners with God on this earth, representing God's will and God's desire for what happens here. And so it puts us in this really special place in creation. There's also this vision of a beautiful temple city in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, those words aren't used. So, one of the things that I've been told already from our first couple episodes, Hannah, is that you and I have to really make sure we define terms. So what do we mean when we say? So when you think of temple, what makes a temple a temple? Oh, there's a sacredness about the building. It's going to set apart. I love that word, sacredness. Yeah. Temple for us as Christians or monotheists temple also has to do with the presence of God, right? God resides in his temple. And so when we see this vision in this Genesis 2 account, God resides in the garden. So it makes it a temple. And God wants this temple to become a community, a city. City really represents human community. And he tells them in Genesis 1.28, fill the earth and subdue it. So we see God's heart here for a populated planet with him present. That's why we call it this image of a temple city. So we got we have that image in Genesis 1 2, 1 and 2. And we're going to see the same thing in Genesis or sorry, Revelation 21 and 22, the temple city, the same kinds of imagery that comes into play. I do think that intimacy that you kind of referenced in that beginning of Genesis has always struck me when I've read it. The idea of God doesn't just speak us into existence, like the animals and the other entities he's creating, but there's that personal, like formed from the dirt, formed from the, from the ground with his hands, that kind of intimacy there. And then even that, that line about in chapter three, verse eight, where it talks about God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Okay, I can't even fathom that idea of watching that happen and being present to God just walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And then even when they do fall, I think that image of God making clothing out of animal skin for them, and it's such a tender image. So it's remarkable, that intimacy there. So, so where does it go wrong, you think? Yeah, so that's what's fascinating about what you bring up is 
you are identifying this idea of this default setting, maybe the God's intent, God's original intent. He's creator, he's Lord, he's involved in our lives. It's all built on intimacy and love. We're created in his image and his likeness. We're intimate partners, we're vice regents, all that's there. But then, yeah, what goes wrong, right? So we see the image distorted in Genesis 3. I think you brought this up before. Why the tree, you know, in the garden? Because it had to be there, right? We have this love only exists, intimacy only exists by choice. And choice has to be present for us to actually truly engage and enjoy the relationship as it was intended. So we see in Genesis 3, this image starts getting distorted. The serpent comes into play. Deception is introduced. This narrative disrupts the order. Now Adam and Eve desire to have more than they have. The serpent pushes them for their own independence, their own control of the situation, right? You can know things you don't know. And really, it's at this point, this kind of fracture, or fracture might be even a little bit too strong. It's this, it's the shift now, right? In exercising free will, it also means that we lose some of that original intent that starts getting broken. And really, you know, there's, there's 1,189 chapters in the Bible. That's a fun fact. I don't know if you knew <laughs> that, but you did not. If we look at these two chapters in the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, and we look at those end chapters in, Genesis, in Revelation 21 and 22, what we really see at play in these middle 1,185 chapters is the story of God's hope and intent against human free will and missteps. And what it can look like, what possibilities and realities of transformation and fulfillment for those who choose to return into that intimacy. Because we know, as God's created beings, that God wants this with us. So if we choose to have it, we have all these amazing opportunities that are given to us about how to restore that, how to enter that, and all the blessings. And if we choose not to have that, the implications of those choices, and that's really what plays out in the middle of the Bible, right? And so then that whole thing kind of unpacks, and we'll talk about how that works a lot. You know, how does that work from from that Genesis 3 moment when things start shifting all the way to Revelation 21? How does that that play out? But then let's kind of just quickly visit this Revelation 21 and 22 piece. So. This vision in Revelation is the fulfilled hope of what the Garden of Eden set out to be. So we have the same imagery. We have this beautiful temple city, right? God's presence with humans. There's this new heaven and new earth. It's prepared by God, as was the Garden of Eden prepared by God. God once again will dwell with those. But what's different this time is they're not just placed there. These are the people who choose to be with God. That's what's different about that second bookend. These are those that choose that outcome. This relationship will be intimate and it's covenantal and it's permanent. It's a committed relationship. What's really amazing about that 
image at the end in that Revelation 21, 22 piece is that God's presence will relieve all suffering and all pain. And in the city, we have this new kind of fullness, this full inclusion, this fulfillment of all these promises. So you return to the Garden of Eden imagery. We have the tree of water, or sorry, the tree of life there. It's said that the leaves will heal the nations. We also have the river of the water of life. The holy basil. So it's just, it's, <laughs> it's, wow. I wonder Full if the circle. holy, can I say basil? I, I'd feel really, if I said basil, I'd, I feel like I'm talking about something that isn't what I mean. I say okay. basil. I'll let you have it. Basil. The healing leaves. <laughs> the healing leaves. <laughs> So we see, you know, a couple passages I think that are important to draw our attention to. Revelation 22, verse 12, it's this haunting passage, but it's also incredibly inspiring or daunting. It really depends on how you live your life. But this ultimate fulfillment gets played out. It says, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. When I read that passage every time, it just, you know, it puts a little bit of chills through you like, wow, my entire life will be summarized in this moment and God will reward me for all the things, right? <laughs> I do think this is a challenging verse for us today. <laughs> I think I... Personally, and I feel like a lot of Christians today that can react to the the feeling of our discipleship or our walks with God being reduced to what we produce. I think that's language that can appear a lot in church culture, whether it's attendance or how many people you're converting or sharing the gospel with and the number of baptisms and the idea of what we're doing being kind of the defining part of us. But then we come across verses like this too. And how do we reconcile those, that, that's, that feeling of not wanting to, our value to come from what we produce, but then this very real expectation of Jesus too, that what we've done will be rewarded. Well, it's interesting how sometimes in church culture, we draw the wrong conclusions about what this means, right? I mean, of course, we're called to make disciples, but that's not nearly the life that we're called to in its entirety. There's so much more to this. So when he says in this passage, or when the Bible tells us that I will give to each person according to what they have done, we have to remember the context of, of all that the New Testament teaches us. This is about a life of love, loving God and loving people. This is about fruits of the Spirit and all the ways that that plays out. This comes down to, have you really lived a life of love and service and giving? And, you know, when we look at passages like Matthew 25, how we treat the prisoner and how we treat the poor, one of my mentors says, and, and this is also another kind of haunting comment, but he says, none of us will get into heaven without a letter of recommendation from the poor. I think, wow, right? So it's really what, what will be said about our life. So to me, you know, sharing your faith is just one teeny tiny little part of that. It's, 
It's the whole way we live and engage the world, which is what we started with when we talked about this call to metanoia, right? A, this is about kingdom living. This is about following Jesus. This is about a life of love in its entirety. So maybe we should even be more, it, it's just, it's even more daunting than sometimes we make it to be, but it should expand the way we see that. So there's this other beautiful passage very soon, soon after that in Revelation 22, verse 17, that I love. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. I, I love that welcoming, you know, God calling us to God's self. And if you're thirsty, if, you're, if you feel this need, like there's this call, right, to come and be in the presence of God. So this is kind of the imagery we have at the end of this bookend of these two, of the meta narrative. I love this idea of bookends, kind of the opening chapters of Genesis and these final chapters of Revelation and that continuity there so that we know where we've started and where we're ending. Um, so what we've talked about genres before, what type of story they, would you say this is that we're in? Of course, we've got these bookends and kind of the messy middle. <laughs> the messy middle, yeah. Well, it's a redemption story for sure. It's a story of God reconciling the problem that enters in Genesis 3. Of course, sin at its core really being us choosing a path other than God's path for us. And the consequences that come from that. So if we see God as a loving God, God's calling us to, in love and for love, this life that's for our benefit. When we choose other, there's consequences to that. And then God is constantly there trying to pick us back up and rescue us. So in some ways, it's a redemption story. It can be called a mission story, right? This goal of restoring creation to its in divinely intended right relationships. It's in, in, in that sense, too, it's a salvation story. Salvation's a word that we often also limit. We talk about salvation in the New Testament only sense of salvation from a life of sin, salvation into the kingdom of God. And it has that application for sure. But salvation's used throughout the Old Testament. It means much more than that. The idea of salvation is that human beings are being saved from themselves and the consequence of their sin and consequence of for others, and even for us, I think sometimes the consequence of other sins and how they affect us. And so we see this constant motion of God's saving acts. And in some ways, that's the type of story that it is too. So there's a, there's a concept, Hannah, that a, a theological concept that we call biblical theology or an approach to theology called biblical theology that is really key in this big picture way of unpacking the story. And biblical theology is a type of theology that looks at the Bible in this salvation history way. So from Genesis 3 to Revelation 21 and 22, how does God solve the problem? And we see it unfold in solutions. So God introduces concepts and then they get played out. It's almost like drawing a picture, you know, with pencil outlining it. And then over time through this story, more detail gets put in and more color gets added. And we can trace these things through this, the biblical narrative, things like priesthood, for example. 
So in some ways, this concept of priesthood, whether it be Melchizedek to, to Aaron as the first priest, to the Levitical priesthood, to how priesthood plays out, the idea is that there are people on the earth interceding for us to come into the presence of God, to get us back, right, to reconcile us. Or we see the same thing happen with Israel and the church. So God starts with one man and with Abraham, and then he develops his people Israel, which comes to be a prototype for the church and God's people in the church. And it's all comes to fulfillment again in Revelation. Or this concept of when we're not with God, we're in exile. And when we're in God's presence, we have rest. And we see that tension play out as it starts. God rescues his people, but then when they misbehave, they don't follow God's plan for their life. Then they end up in these places where they're discontent and unhappy and in exile. And yet, when we come back into God's presence, we find rest. Or even the concept of kingdom, right? This idea that there's a place where we can participate in community that is special, it's set apart, it's, it's unique. And that's what we see even happen with this concept of kingdom as it develops. And I think another big one is this idea that we've already touched on, which is temple or tabernacle. So the tabernacle was God's presence. Of course, the garden was God's presence. The tent of meeting was God's presence. Then it's the tabernacle that becomes the permanent place of God's presence. Temple, which becomes... Jesus tabernacling amongst us, God's presence now incarnate and fleshed amongst the people. So that's what biblical theology does. It really traces these things out through this meta narrative. And I think it really helps us understand the big picture story. Definitely. I think it's cool at the end of Revelation where God talks about he's not just dwelling in the temple, that he is the temple. There's no need for a temple anymore. Like the way that imagery evolves and is even eradicated when necessary to, like it serves its purpose. That's exactly right. That's right. That's exactly right. So the last piece I think that we should just touch on today, Hannah, is the importance of the storyline. So we've talked about the bookends and you kind of have these, the story kind of gets set up, the plot gets set up throughout the first, really the first 12 chapters of Genesis So as we've already discussed in Genesis 1 and 2, God has these two trees. We have the tree of life, the tree of good and evil. By the time we enter Genesis 3, we see this immediate tension that enters that beautiful imagery. Now, Adam and Eve eating of the tree of good and evil reveals this human struggle. I mean, of course, all of us want this life of fullness, right? We want, or what we would say, a fulfilled, happy, meaningful life. but that desire for us to do it our way or do it God's way creates this tension inside of us, right? So eating of the tree really represents their choice to rebel against Yahweh as Lord and do it their way, which is the struggle that humans constantly have. Their disobedience alienates them. They're expelled from the garden. Now, instead of being vice regents, and fulfilling their role as temple builders, they end up pursuing their own ambitions. And that disobedient behavior pollutes the earth and it grieves the creator. So we see that play out. Genesis 4 to 11 is just that playing out, right? The implications of those choices culminating in all kinds of horrible things from, you know, murder and 
and all the aloneness and all the the wickedness that plays out from that choice. And it actually culminates in Genesis Genesis 11 with Babel, or what's interesting in the original Hebrew here is Babel is Babylon. It's the same place. Babel or Babylon comes to exemplify this place where human desire to live in community without God is represented. So if we do this without God, this is what this is Babel or Babylon. When we do it with God, it can become the temple city or the kingdom, right? So that all plays out in those early chapters of Genesis. Then God comes in in Genesis 12 and he starts implementing his plan to reconcile mankind back to him. And it all begins with Abraham. And so in Genesis 12, and we're going to get into this and we'll unpack all of this as we go. But I think just from a big picture standpoint, I wanted to touch base or touch on this. So in Genesis 12, rather than universally accepting humanity's rejection of Yahweh, Yahweh or God initiates a plan to restore hope and vision for a temple city built in co-regency with us as human beings. And this plan requires redemption and reconciliation to restore that intimate relationship. And so Abraham is the first one called. And God reiterates his love and his intention through these promises that he makes to Abraham. So when we're talking about these promises to Abraham, we see them articulated in Genesis 12 and Genesis 17. Three of them are specific to Abraham, and we see them fulfilled in the book of Genesis around Abraham's life. One is, I will bless you, which God does. Number two was, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, which we see play out in Genesis. And then, I will make your name great. And certainly, Abraham is one of the most recognized names in the monotheistic tradition. The other promises start crafting the rest of the story. Promise four, I will make you into a great nation. And that's part of the tension of the whole, you know, Abraham doesn't have a son until he's an older man and how that works. You feel the tension of that story, but it really does become, Israel does become a great nation. And that that one promise is the rest of the Torah. It's the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy playing out. Then we see this promise Land. That's why we call it the promised land. It's, it was a land that was promised to Abraham. And promise five was to your offspring, I will give this land. At the time the promise was made, he was, of course, standing on that soil of that land. And that's what happens in the book of Joshua when they cross into that promised land. The book of Judges, Ezra, and Nehemiah is all about establishing themselves or reestablishing themselves in this land that was promised to Abraham. The interesting next two promises, promise six was kings will come from you. And this is where genealogies are really important. We see play out in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, the kings that come through this nation of which came from Abraham. And we see those stories play out. And then lastly, that seventh promise really is the story of Jesus. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Through this nation, Israel, through that lineage of that family, 
that all started with Abraham, Jesus came to heal the world. So we see that part of this story play out. So I love using these seven promises that God made to Abraham kind of as these pillars of the meta narrative throughout the Bible. And then really, and, and this is probably a good place for us to end today, is how Jesus really was the fulfillment of all those things. And even all these things we've started talking about today, Jesus was the ultimate priest and prophet. Jesus was the Messiah. He was the ultimate king of Israel. He was the groom to the church. He was the source of life, the bread of life, or the real manna. He was the tabernacle. He came to tabernacle amongst us. He was the temple in our presence. He's the gate and the very presence of God. As king, he came to usher in the kingdom. And of course, he really ultimately came to restore everything that was broken in Genesis 3. So we see Jesus coming in fulfillment of all these solutions God starts putting into place in Genesis 12. So I love that. That's that's what we're going to be tracing out as we kind of navigate the next few years together. Wow. I, I also love the, those seven promises and even just that imagery of the first three to Abraham, he gets to see the fulfillment of in his, I guess, kind of in his lifetime. But then the, the rest, he never sees the fulfillment of those promises. I think mean, that's a real test of patience even to us. I think we are so immediate, you know, gratification or wanting to see results. I think there are some promises that come, the fulfillment of which comes so much later and into the New Testament even. That's a great point. Uh, we'll never see, I mean, and I, I think that's really true when we talk about the implications of our lives. We're never going to see the full fruit of all that we do and live and how we live. It will be passed on for generations. And I agree with you. That's one of the important parts of knowing this narrative is it gives us hope and context. Well, this wraps up our introductory episodes. We've kind of dipped our toe. Yay! <laughs> We're done, guys. But now the real, the real narrative begins, which is exciting. So we've kind of dipped our toe into Genesis today. And next week, we'll be diving in further into Genesis chapter one and this idea of creation and beauty. So we look forward to you joining us. That's going to be that. fun. Thank you, Dave. Thanks, Hannah. Thank you for joining this Thread Conversation. We're more than a podcast. Check out threadpodcast.org for more immersive content. Though I'm way down here, I get a better view of this boundless world that I'm